the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Welcome to The Common Good on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, alongside, as always, is Ian Simpkins. Hello. Happy Monday, my man. Happy Monday, indeed. It's If I keep saying happy Monday, it makes it happy, right? Do, does it? That's so. yet to happen for me. I don't... I believe I, you. I'm just on our whiteboard in here. I'm just going to keep giving a tally of every time you come in. It's like, I'm so tired. <laughs> I think we're going to run out of space yes. on that whiteboard. <laughs> we just keep going. Well, uh, you can follow us at Facebook. Uh, at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Or online at 1160hope.com. Uh, there you can find old shows and all sorts of stuff. Uh, serious question. Did you have a good weekend? Uh, I did have a good weekend. Just a sleep-deprived weekend. Yeah. But it was good, though. I, it's kind of, I'm kind of just getting used to it, I guess. I'm sort of living in a constant state of sleeplessness. But overall, it was it was a good week. I just got to spend a lot of time... Hanging with my family, kind of laying low, cleaning up a little bit. Yeah. How about you? We did the same. Uh, For Friday night, I drove out with my son all the way to Rock Island, Illinois. watched the Wheaton Thunder in the uh, NSA tournament. Fancy. Uh, Yeah, it was really fun. But the rest of the weekend was pretty chill. In fact, yesterday we had like family game night. Did you ever play Rummy Cube? Oh, yeah. That's a game I grew up playing and taught it to the kids. So. Uh, it was fun. It was a good time. I, although you did come in this morning just raging, <laughs> raging about time change. <laughs> I am not a fan. It made sense 120 years ago. Let's get rid of it. We don't need it anymore. It just doesn't make any sense I, to me. I, I learned something from watching you and Marcus Brown, our program director, uh, going at it about time change and its lunacy. I was like, oh, I never thought about it. That he it was agrees for with me, by the oh, way. Yes, he does. Just to be clear. Like, you be guys clear. are like going to be the grassroots organizers of <laughs> the movement against time change. I doubt it very much. And well, you brought it up, too. The fact that it happens on a Saturday night slash Sunday morning. It really, and I don't know, did you preach yesterday? I did. Did it, did it reflect in the early attendance oh, that morning? 100%. <laughs> so we have two services at our church. Right. Uh, and they're usually split probably like 40%. You know, it's probably a third to two-thirds or okay. 40%. Usually the second service is double-ish, yeah. a little less than that. Yesterday it felt like, you know, hey, me and like 11 of my favorite friends. And then <laughs> and then the second service like, we're out of chairs. Don't Everyone showed do. up. <laughs> I told our first service, I said, this is the jewels in heaven service. <laughs> yeah. That's good. That's nerdy, but that's good. Man. So it was, it was something. So. Uh, one thing that as I had some downtime over the weekend and I uh, was just going through Twitter and my Twitter started blowing up, I even took a screenshot of it and sent it to you. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was interesting because it was one of those things where when I read it, I get immediately really angry. <laughs> and then there ends up being just a little more nuance to it. But uh, the Washington Post wrote an article about it this way. President Trump autographed Bibles for survivors of the Alabama tornado outbreak. So yeah. there was there were these terrible tornadoes in Alabama. 
President Trump doing what you hope presidents do. He did a good job going down there, visiting, uh, helping people, kind of talking them through. But then he was at a church, and and there was a weird kind of dynamic where, and then pictures started posting up on Twitter of autographed Bibles, where yeah. he autographed the things. And I was like, that is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. And right. in fact, when I first texted it to you, you wrote back to me, I'm moving to Canada. <laughs> <laughs> That's a joke, people. He's not. But. Thanks for outing me in front yeah. of everybody. Yeah. But what was your what was your thoughts initially, and then how did it grow a little more, maybe a more nuanced as the as the weekend went? Well, and I'm trying to do a better job of this just in general. I think we saw this with the uh, Covington Catholic yep. Schoolboys story, and how quickly we jumped to some kind of conclusion, and then just kind of becomes a groundswell. It. I mean, there's a couple of things, and the Post article does a good job of interviewing people who are like, I I was so glad to meet him. I was so glad that he came, people were calling it a, a godsend. And if you actually read what happened, it it wasn't like Trump showed up with a stack of Bibles and was like offering to sign them to pass them out as, as some sort of prize. It was like, it started off as little kids, mm-hmm. like 10, 12 year olds, that all, all they had with them was their Bible asking the president to sign them. And that's a much different narrative than I think, because uh, I saw people on Twitter in particular, you know, they're posting photos of him signing the, the, the cover Saying things like, "Wow, there's just one more book that he's signing that he didn't write, or you know, <laughs> or, or or hasn't opened yet, or you know, just like there was." Uh, and again, some of it was pretty funny, to that, be honest. I was going to say that's a cheap shot, but it's funny. It was a cheap shot, and I think um, it's again looking at the image now, it it still strikes me as a little strange, but it's not unprecedented though. Apparently, yeah. like other evangelical heroes, not just um, you know people who are politicians, like Tim Tebow, I guess, has signed Bibles before. And Billy usually, Graham. Billy Graham, Billy Graham, right. Graham. Usually, and this is maybe nitpicking, usually it's like inside the cover yeah. with like a little message with a signature. Yeah, yeah. This was like on the cover with this, you know, big <laughs> markery signature. And I don't know if that actually makes a difference. It kind of does in my mind. But yeah. it is another example, though, of like just a little whisper of a story and then people yes. jumping all over it. People freaking out saying some pretty funny stuff. Again, yeah. I'm, <laughs> I have to admit having laughed to a lot of that, but like, I don't know. The, the story had a lot more nuance than I realized. I did realize that our president has an insane signature. It's super <laughs> weird. It's super strange. It, it looks like a polygraph reader. It, it just looks really like. It really does. It really does. Have Has anyone ever asked you to sign their Bible? <laughs> no. I actually, it happened to me once. It did? It did. It and did, did you? I, I just out of awkwardness, I didn't know what else to do. So I did. <laughs> it was when I was, re- I was like a youth pastor and I preached at my old church at Glenham Bible Church. And there was an older gentleman who was visiting his family. So he was just visiting the church. And afterwards he said, Hey, great job. Thank you for that. And then he goes, whenever I visit churches, I always ask the pastor to sign his name inside my Bible. No kidding. And I was like, I, uh, what? Yeah. And then I just did it and <laughs> kind of handed it back to him. So uh, I do. I remember I went through a season when I was a youth pastor where in cards, when, when students would ask me to sign it and then like put a life first or some kind of uh, I would always intentionally put really obscure passages in there. There's one out of Second Kings that I would always use, and I would just put the reference. So the the reference in Second Kings is, uh, "Man of God, there's death in the pot." <laughs> so I would write like, "Best wishes, so proud of you." Second Kings four twenty one or whatever it is. <laughs> and I don't know that if they ever awesome. like went home and looked it up because no one has ever called me on it. They're like at, my pastor loves all. me. Yeah, right. I'm wondering if they like looked it up and then thought. Oh, my pastor's lost his mind. He's just insane. I know pastors aren't supposed to do this, but sometimes intentionally taking verses blatantly out of context <laughs> I know. I just know. makes for uh, makes for great humor. <laughs> I told you does. the time we're totally off the subject, but I told you the time we did that at, when I was at Wheaton, and we made uh, floor T-shirts, 
and it became like a school thing. Like people got mad at us, but we we took the verse out of Luke where uh, it's at the resurrection, and uh, the the women come from the tomb and they run back to tell the tell the disciples that the tomb is empty. And there's a verse that says, and they did not believe the women for their words seemed to them like nonsense. Oh, my gosh. And all, that's all we put on the back. And then we wrote in parentheses, it's biblical. Oh, geez. I'm going to distance myself from that joke, from that but story, the funny thing is people from would be, you as a person. The funny thing is people would be like, that's not, that's not the context. We're like, we know. That's why it's <laughs> right. funny. We don't believe it. I just wish there was more outcry for that's not the context I in, I don't know, like sermons. Yes. <laughs> I know. Instead of college t-shirts that yeah, were made right. for a laugh that were... Uh, I guess the way I would do this story is I'm much less, you know, when I first heard, I was like, I can't believe President Trump is signing Bibles. Now I'm more like, hey, could, maybe we should rethink the whole practice of signing Bibles. Oh, yeah. Maybe, I actually didn't know it was a practice to begin did with. I. It sounds a little bit more a Southern thing and Bible Belt thing, but may, maybe maybe that sends a mixed message to our kids and, and just how you view the Bible. Yeah, I could see that. I also think maybe it was the whole thing was just blown out of proportion I anyway. And the very fact that we're talking about it. As the very first segment on our show, yep. to me, is sort of uh, evidence of the case. Like, wow, this got bigger than yep. maybe it needed to be. Yep, I blew it out of proportion. I sent you the text <laughs> on Saturday going, I can't believe it. That's a good point. <laughs> Touche. Well, coming up next on The Common Good, we are going to talk about uh, the new Captain Marvel movie that came out this week. And an, an interestingly, what I would call a strange take or a strange <laughs> article that we came across uh, poking at, at one particular part of this movie. That's what's coming up next on The Common Good. On AIM 1160, hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AIM 1160. My name is Brian Fromm, along with Ian Simpkins. You can follow us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. Also, you can find old shows online at 1160hope.com. Well, Ian, this week the new Captain Marvel movie came out. That's right. To, to great fanfare. And uh, while well, neither of us have seen it, um, because we have children and it's hard to get out to see movies <laughs> these days, uh, what we have, you and I were discussing and we wanted to talk about on air was just this kind of uh, almost a backlash that's been going on. Uh, as some background, as I read about it, it seems like a lot of people are saying the Captain Marvel movie is is intended to do for feminism yeah. what Black Panther did for the African-American community in amongst these superhero movies. Um and but just some weird takes coming out that that <laughs> I found uh, bothersome um, about the message it was trying to send. Yeah, what was one of those takes that you found particularly bothersome? Yeah, <laughs> teed it up, baby. <laughs> That's uh, what I'm here to do. So at DesiringGod dot uh, dot org, that is uh, a website that I quite frankly love to go to. It's right. pretty conservative, um, but I'll do a lot a lot of sermon prep. I'll do there. I'll go read stuff on there. Uh, but they wrote an article uh, basically um, reviewing the movie, and they went all in on what they are calling the feminist agenda. Yeah. And they made some comments on here that I found um, crazy, As a, quite <laughs> frankly, as a dad of two daughters. Right, mm. I've got two daughters, and mm. I've got a son, um, and, and they made some statements in here that made it sound like this was the the biggest feminist movie ever. But then they made some. So listen to this. They said this. As I consider Disney's new depiction of femininity, femininity in Captain Marvel, I cannot help but mourn how far we've come since the days of Sleeping Beauty and Snow White. And Yikes. my my Yikes. first thing is like, I'm not sure that I want my teenage daughter like. 
going for the Snow White Sleeping Beauty representation for yeah, the restaurant. Nor, I'm not nor sure, should you. I'm not sure that's the goal. Yep, I don't blame you, man. I, I think the, story, the article only gets worse, in my opinion. He later says, am I nitpicking? It is a movie after all. I wish I wish it were instead of engaging the movie's ideology as mere fiction, a fun escape to another world. We've allowed it to bear uh, deadly fruit on Earth. Along with Disney, we abandon the traditional princess vibe and seek to empower little girls everywhere to be strong like men. Cinderella trades her glass slipper for combat boots. Belle, her books for a bazooka. Does the insanity bother us anymore? And, and you had kind of mentioned off air, like, I want my girls to be strong. Yes. Like it seems to sort of assert that desiring for our women to be strong, our women, even even that phrase, always just women to be yep. strong. Like yep. you're thinking of your daughter specifically, yes. but his <laughs> outrage seems to be that we're empowering girls to be strong, and that I'm I'm a little baffled actually that he he kind of doubles down on that particular perspective for the rest of the article. And I think what what got me in this was just that phrase that you read. That we're trying to empower little girls to be strong like men. No, I I would say I'm trying to empower my daughters to be strong, period. Yeah. I'm fully aware that men and women are different, and I'm fully aware that that's getting confused in our culture. And I think that's problematic. Like, I want to teach my son and my daughters uh, what is different, you know, what it, what is... Uh, uh, what it means to be a woman versus what it means to be a man. Like, I do think that's an important conversation to be having. But but to say that the ideal for a woman in our culture is Sleeping Beauty and Snow White versus uh, this character from Captain Marvel because she's too strong and she's acting like a man because she's showing strength and leadership feels like a really strange take, quite frankly, even yeah. for Desiring God, yeah. <laughs> even yeah. for that website, which is always very conservative, always very complementarian. It just feels like a really uh, a really out there take that, that when I read it, I was like, is this like a parody? Is this like the Christian Onion right now? <laughs> or the Babylon Bee, right? <laughs> well, it feels a little uh, fragile, if I could use the word. Mm-hmm. Like in general, it feels like um, fear-mongering kind of, Toted as good scholarship. Like to me, again, I, I don't know, it has headings like lamenting Disney's new queen. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't know, man. This just kind of feels like a guy who's a, like a little upset that a Marvel Universe that has historically kind of been male dominated yeah. is seeing some shifts in its culture and its character choices. And, you know, he does kind of give some context for, you know, how Captain Marvel originated and some of his, his issues, I think, are with the actual storyline. But he, he does not spend the bulk of the time there. He, he really seems to spend a lot of his time talking about, oh, goodness, what is happening to our princess girls that, you know, only wanted to wear dresses and slippers. I would say, um, man, that that is unfortunate that he yeah. sees that as such an unhelpful shift to expand his understanding of what, you know, femininity can look like. Yeah, and it's so – we live in such a strange time right now, and that's where I want to kind of take this to, like – Again, I have two daughters and a son, and I'm trying to teach my son, quite frankly, things that I'm not teaching my daughter. So, yeah, right. I, hey, bud, you, you need to hold the door when your mom's coming. You need to hold the door for your sisters. Uh, he gets really mad at me when I'm like, nope, you let your sisters go first. Like, I'm trying to teach him things about what it means to be chivalrous, what, you know, what it means, in my opinion, to be a man, all these kind of things. So I'm not, like, trying to throw out any distinctions here. Uh, but but to kind of go back to a day where it says we don't want our women to be strong, whatever that means, right? He doesn't yeah. even define, like, what this strength is. 
Uh, it just strikes me as odd. Like that's that's not where I want to take my daughters. I want to take my daughters into strength and into confidence, and, and to kind of help them see this is what it looks like. Um, and and this is trying to say like we live in a confused culture, and I feel like this article is confusing more. Yeah, and I find that to be problematic. To anyone who's reading this who has daughters, going, yeah, I do believe this. I need to get my daughter back to acting like Sleeping Beauty or Snow White, just waiting for their Prince Charming. Yeah. I don't know, man. I, I feel like that's dangerous. Well, I, I mean, I want to push back a little bit, and I don't think we have time to do it fully, but, y- you know, you mentioned a couple of times now, I, now I want to tell my, my girls what being a woman is. E- even that is, that can be tough to do because it is assuming some sort of, like, one-dimensional depiction or definition of what sure. a woman is in the same way that, oh, a man is someone who holds doors open for women. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, so... So is he not a man if he doesn't? Like, is that, you know, does the identity of who he is? Like, I think um, if we're not putting out in front of everything Christ-likeness. Absolutely. Regardless of, I mean, because a lot of that comes down to culture. Even we're talking in a Western mm-hmm. post-enlightenment culture. But there's a lot of, I think, like Jesus-loving, Bible-believing people uh, in the East, in the South, that um, their depictions of how these how these roles are meant to play out in their culture look differently. Mm-hmm. And I think... That can be hard for us to reconcile because, you know, you, Brian Fromm, or me and Sim, because I have, a, I have an idea yep. of what my son or daughter is supposed to look like. I, we're going to miss it, too. Like, Absolutely. So I think, man, I, I know that I will, I will never regret first pointing them towards Christ-likeness. Absolutely. A, as I grow and as I expand, and I feel like even just in the last year or two, there have been really wise women who have opened my eyes to things that I had not been paying attention to, stuff that I uh, did not intend to um, point in a certain direction and said, "Hey, you, th- here's some here's some unconscious bias. Here are some decisions that you're saying or not saying, doing, not doing that are actually perpetuating something that I think you're not about." Like, I, I want to be a continual learner, I guess, in that mm-hmm. regard, and and not just assume that I have all the answers of what a man's supposed to look like, yep. what a woman is supposed to look like. Yep, yep. I think that's that is absolutely the key, right? We want to point both men and women to Jesus and to say, live in this sacrificial way. Um. I, I do know that, especially for my son, you know, we still live in a culture in which men can be dominant and abusive. And I want to tell him, here's what sacrifice looks like. I want the, my girls to yeah, know that, too. Totally. But but I, I guess I would say I feel a bigger burden to make sure my son understands it because we mm. still live in a culture where he could um, abuse that. Yeah. And uh, and work that way. So that's a good caution. Maybe we should go see the movie now. Yeah. Apparently. We'll take a show trip. <laughs> who, wants, who wants to go with us? Maybe we'll come back. Like, that was a fan. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, well, coming up next on The Common Good, we are going to talk to Robert Krantz. He's a producer for a new movie called Faith, Hope, and Love that begins in theaters on March 15th. That's what's coming up next on The Common Good on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, joined as always by Ian Simpkins. You can follow us at Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show or online at 1160hope.com. Ian, we're really excited to be joined by fo- on the phone uh, by Robert Krantz. Robert is uh, the, is it both acting, producing, directing, doing a little bit of everything with a new movie coming out called Faith, Hope, and Love that is in theaters beginning this week. On March 15th. Robert, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure, guys. Great to be here. Believe me. Well, we're just curious. Why don't you tell us a little bit about this movie? It's not every day we get a we get a movie guy on, on the show, so we're excited to hear about this. Tell us more about Faith, Hope, and Love. 
You know, it, the one of the most interesting things, at least from my perspective as a Christian, is um, it is a faith-based romantic comedy. Mm. And they're just, you know, if you think about that, when was the last I asked that question at the premiere. I said, when was the last time you saw a faith-based romantic comedy? The audience just started laughing. <laughs> because they did, you know, and it's, and, and I, I, I said, I know, isn't that kind of the, the truth? Because they've kind of lumped Christian films into two categories. Mm. One is kind of the historical film, which is, you know, Moses, the Ten Commandments, uh, Passion of the Christ, the Apostle Paul. Right. And then on the other side is something incredibly dramatic, which is usually somebody died, went to heaven, and came back. Yes. Which, which is great. I love, the, I, I love both those kind of movies. But in between all that is the Christian life that myself, my wife, my friends live which it has joy and hope and love and redemption and marriage and all these things, and just getting through a day-to-day life of raising your children right. and enjoying your marriage and all that stuff and the struggles of life, and that is what faith, hope, and love is about. In particular, it's this. Faith, Turley, uh, the faith of faith, hope, and love, is um, just recently got divorced. Her husband was cheating on her. She's, mm. uh, all she got in the divorce was her dance studio, which she's about to lose because it has to be retrofitted, and she needs a lot of money. And so she decides, okay, I'm going to enter this pro-schmo dance contest, but she needs to find a schmo. <laughs> and... <laughs> don't, don't we all? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's where I come in. What a segue. And so what happens, I play um, Jimmy Hope, and what uh, Jimmy is, three years ago I lost my wife, in a car accident and I've been raising two daughters and I'm just struggling to get by and I've kind of lost my, uh, my joy of life. Hmm. And the movie opens up with my youngest daughter talking to a priest and saying, I want you to pray for my dad. Uh, he, I want him to enter this pro schmo dance contest. Hmm. And he, the priest says, okay, look, we're going to pray, but we got to leave it up to God. And she goes, I, I've already talked to God. I, this is going to work out. He's going to meet my dance instructor, and they're going to fall in love. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. She's just sure of it. And uh, sure enough, um, Faith and Jimmy end up becoming partners through a set of very funny circumstances, and they become the pro and schmo um, partnership in this competition. And through the process of the film, their perspectives on faith, hope, and love change greatly. That's that's fantastic. That well, okay, so Bob, can I call you Bob? Is that okay? <laughs> or Schmo? Or Schmo? <laughs> I think I think we're going to call him Bobby Schmo the rest of the time. Bobby, Bobby Schmo's got a good. If you, were, if you were a mobster, okay. So, yeah, right. so I'm, I'm really fascinated by this idea because our show is literally called the Common Good, and the common piece for us is that uh, exactly what you were saying. You know, typically life isn't like a mountaintop or a valley. There's all this common space, and you're right on. And a lot of times christian film also christian music is sort of like one-dimensional and flat like it only deals with like you said one of these two extremes i'm i'm really fascinated by your desire to enter into sort of this common space of like yeah romance and heartache and divorce and dating and kids and like that stuff's really real and it, it does seem like there is a lack of christian artistry to tackle those types of topics. I'm curious, one, like what, what drove you to that? And two, why, why do you think it's so rare for Christians, particularly in the film medium, to, to talk about the more like common aspects of life? Because when people talk about Christianity, they feel like they have to put their Superman cape on. Yeah. 
got to make it all perfect. Everything's great. We're all great. And we can't make any excuses. That's not life. Right. That's just not life. And I've also known just from an artistic point of view, when you write close to your soul, Hmm. you are going to engage the audience. Hmm. When, when, when I go on speak, when I'm talking to you guys, I guarantee you when I, when, when I hang up the phone, go on the rest of my, this is how I am. Yeah. Right. You cannot be a phony out there. You know, I'm not saying that I'm always this way all the time, but you, you, you've got to be real with people. And when you, when you write something and you act in something, you produce something, you've got to come real to the people mm. and you've got, and that's one of the issues came up in the, in the movie. They were talking, well, dancing and how is that, how are, you know, how are they going to react to that? It, they're going to be fine. Yeah. And yeah. In one of the scenes, the, 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 um, uh, the two characters go into a bar and they have a drink and well, how do you, how do you, they're going to be fine. I have, million, I have a million Christian friends. Yes. They'll have a drink. I don't particularly drink that much. It's just the, the nature of me. You know, I, I yeah. have a drink every so often. But I, I, I don't try and live my life to be the perfect human being. I try my best. And when I put these films out there, I show characters that have flaws, mm. ups and downs, uh, things that they're trying to get through. And that's the life that I know. That, that life of, of, you know... Uh, uh, my wife and I have three boys. The, the struggle of having those children, to, to give you a quick example of what I mean. Um, when I, I said to my wife, I said, you know, I can't wait to have kids and so forth. I, mean, I want to have a lot of them and so forth. And um, what happened was we, uh, we had just come back from a trip, and she let me know that she was pregnant. She had taken a test. And so I was so excited, came back to the house a couple of weeks later, and there was an ambulance out front, hmm. and uh, we r- rushed her to the hospital, and we were looking at the monitor, and I saw these two sacks in the monitor. And for the longest time, I thought, because we didn't have a dollar to our name at this point. Hmm. <laughs> and I was looking at the monitor going, Lord, I can handle one, but I think that's two. <laughs> and I said to the, the doctor, yeah, those twins. And he said, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, that's definitely twins. I'm trying to figure what this is over here. And he scrolled over. And sure enough, it was triplets. Oh, that's incredible. That's incredible. Three boys. And what happened was 12 weeks into the uh, pregnancy, my wife went into labor. Wow. And uh, and they were telling my wife's like five, three hundred, five pounds. And they were telling her uh, that they they told us this is the words they used. They said, uh, you're both an excellent candidate for reduction. Mm. At that point, I wasn't an excellent excellent candidate for anything in my life. Mm. So when I took the brochure home, I was thinking, I wonder what that means. Like, what do you win or something? I open yeah, up the right. brochure and they show you what they're going to do and how they're going to reduce. I got about a half a paragraph into it and closed it. Mm. And I called my wife and said, Hey, they're, they're asking us if we're going to reduce from three kids to two to one. Wow. And it was, they, they, and he just not to put the black hat on the doctor. This is what he said to us. And it was sobering. He said, look, I'm not worried about these three boys dying. What I'm worried about, you're going to give birth to three invalids and your marriage will be over. Mm. I've seen it happen over and over again. So we cried and we prayed. And, we, and this is what I mean about real life and real things yeah. that happen in life. Uh, we cried and we prayed and we prayed. And, and uh, thank God, you know, I think my wife and I had been married only a couple years. And this was the first and probably the most major uh, hurdle we'd ever go- gone through. Wow. And uh, and at the end, we went back to the doctor and said, hey, look, because a priest once said something to me, and I never forgot it. We were talking about this issue, and he, I said, what would you do? And he goes, he goes, my my marriage with Maria, he goes, we would we would get through anything. 
Mm. And he said, so I'm, I'm not worried about it. And I remember thinking about my wife at the time. I thought, you know what? Our marriage is solid. We're, we'll get through anything. If it's three invalids, then that's what God gives us. But believe me, I don't say that with any bravado. We mm. were scared to death. Mm. We were scared to death, and we were crying and praying. So uh, we told the doctor, we're gonna, no, we're going to keep whatever God gives us, he gives us. And we made it to about 15 weeks, 20 weeks. He said, look, if you come back in before Labor Day, he said, we're gonna, I'm going to ask you guys to uh, reduce. Sure enough, on Labor Day, it, the buzzers went off. We came back in, and he, said, he was about to say something. My wife came out of the bathroom with her gown, and she said, look, you're going to ask us to reduce. The answer is no, we're not <laughs> wow. reducing, wow. and you can leave. She's like, five, three, six, two. And he started laughing. He goes, all right, you guys are going to try and go the whole way. Long story short, uh, week 32, 33, he said, look, I've been wrong all along. He turned to my wife and goes, why don't you tell me when you're going to give birth, and I'll show up. Wow. And she said wow. December 20th, 1998, and Chris, Nick, and George were born. Wow. And they went on to be three top scholar athletes and are playing football in college now. No kidding. And, yeah, and that's it. two of them at the University of Chicago. Oh, wow. And, wow. Yeah, it, it, so um, that is in the other Wash U, Washington, St. Louis. Oh, okay, yeah. Which, by the way, happen to be arch rivals, so <laughs> there <laughs> there you go. have a sense of humor, too. Yes. So um, my point in saying that all that that story is those are real things that happen in life and you struggle and those are the and you get through them and you triumph and you you, you your faith is put to the test and those are the type of things I try and put in the movies that I do. That's great. Well, Robert, I wish we had more time with you, but we are so grateful. It's been fun talking to you. It felt like it started as Robert. Now we're at Bobby Schmo. <laughs> You're at Bobby. And, uh, Bobby Schmo. <laughs> <laughs> and now we, we made it. <laughs> uh, just to, to plug it again, uh, Robert Krantz uh, is both a director and a producer and a lead actor in Faith, Hope, and Love, which comes out in movie theaters beginning in March 5th, on March 15th. You can find uh, more information at fhl.movie. That's fhl.movie. Robert, we hope it goes well. I think between rom-com and dancing, you, I know you've got my wife hooked. So. <laughs> oh, I mean, nice. Hey, guys, you, i got to tell you, the response to this film has been unbelievable. That's great. You're going to love it if you get out there. Well, we're planning on it. We're excited. Absolutely. Hey, hey but thanks, thanks so much for joining us. We hope it goes great for you. My pleasure. God bless. That's been Robert Krantz from the Faith, Hope, and Love movie. Uh, well, coming up next... Uh, Ian and I are going to continue the discussion uh, about the white-collar gospel. That's what's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Uh, You can follow us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Find us online. Find old shows there at 1160 Hope. Dot com. You can also uh, find our podcast wherever it is that you find podcasts. We're all over the place, man. We'll even come <laughs> to your place and just talk to you. Don't. Brian will. I, I don't will. Know. <laughs> One thing we've learned over the first two months of the show is apparently I have, like, deep-seated needs for approval. So it's like, I'll come just say nice things about me and I'll be nice. Well, I think I do as well. I think coming from a big family, though, you, you get used to, like, okay, this is just going to be the time where no one can pay attention to me. Yes. There's just too many of us right now. I'm, I'll, uh, I'll come back tomorrow. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> uh, on the Gospel Coalition website, somewhere you and I will go on often just to kind of uh, find stories and do other things. You more than me. Probably true. Uh, there was an article entitled this this week called The White Collar Gospel. That caught my eye when I saw The White Collar Gospel. Let me just read to you the first paragraph or two, uh, and I'd love your thoughts on it. It said, before the Atlantic staff writer Derek Thompson coined the term for 
a previously unnamed religion last month, we'd all seen signs of it. The overemphasis on calling and passion. Tesla CEO Elon Musk's tweet read this. Nobody ever changed the world on 40 hours a week. The Gen Z employees whose biggest fear about starting work is not finding a job that matches their personality. So this guy in the Atlantic, Thompson, he called this new religion workism hmm. or the belief that work is, quote, not only necessary to economic production, but also the centerpiece of one's identity and life purpose. Hmm. It is kind of a religion promising identity, transcendence and community. Man, when I read that, I was said, yeah, that that pretty much feels like our culture. <laughs> yeah, I think in the words of probably Keller and others in the similar kind of tribe, they talk about worship as placing ultimate worth on something. Mm-hmm. And that that idea of like what sits in our place of ultimate worth is, I, I think, a helpful way to think about it. Because uh, in the same way that, you know, often people will say, oh, I don't have a idolatry problem because I don't have a statue in my living room. Mm-hmm. We think of idols in this kind of like one dimensional way. I think we also think of worship as this one dimensional. It's like, oh, worship. It's yep. singing. We have worship music and worship albums and worship yep. conferences, which is part of it, I think. But I don't think at the surface most of most of us would say, "Oh, I worship work. That's good. Oh, I worship my career." But if you ask somebody, "Do you place ultimate worth on work?" Um, that will at least I think cause people to pause for a moment, like, "Oh, I do kind of." And what I mean by that is like I place all of this expectation that this job or my accomplishments at this job will fill some some longing. Some yep. I, it'll give me my identity, my purpose. Even though we can usually give Sunday school answers like, "No, my identity's in Jesus," but I think we behave as if my success over here, though, that's the thing that I really at my at my most honest moments. That's what I hang my hat on, and I think that's part of what he. It's why he calls it a religion of workism yes. and not just an addiction. Like it's yes. uh, it's something that is it's an easy altar for us to worship at because it's it's so acceptable, right? Mm-hmm. When you think about it, like. Alcoholics get help. Workaholics get applause. Yes, right. Like they're like, yeah, or a heart attack or a heart attack, (laughs) right? But usually applause before that. Man, you get it, man. You're hustling. You're making it happen. You know, you're caring for your family. Like I just find that so strange that like one ism, you need you need help, and we agree, and we all kind of rally around that person. The other ism, um, it's crickets at best and applause at worst. Like man, keep getting them. You know, we kind of. In particular, love to see our clergy exhausted, right? Absolutely. I think we feel like we're getting our bang for our buck. If mm-hmm. my pastor's not tired, like, well, then what are we paying him yeah, for? What do you do? Right, right, right. There's like a suspicion sometimes. He says this. This is a great Christian phrase, right? Under this mindset, work demands our utmost for its highest. <laughs> oh, man. That's good. <laughs> that's that, the that, Oswald that Chambers. Our utmost for its highest. Uh, and you see this a couple different ways. I like how you framed it as idolatry, mm. the idolatry of work. Uh, I read something the other day. That said, because a lot of us, we probably get into the business world or other things and we think, well, there's going to come a point where I'm going to make enough and get high enough up the ladder that I no longer have to work much. Mm. But other people will start doing the work. But right now I've got to put in the time to get there. And I read an article the other day that said the top 10 percent earners um, in our country, right, work like something like 60 or 70 hours a week on average. Yeah. That the fallacy is that if you get higher up, you'll work less. They yeah, actually right, right, end right. up working more. Right. And man, I can't tell you how many people I know, especially when we were younger and they were just getting into the work world, you know, kind of like, well, I'm going to climb the ladder who then they got to the point of having kids. And they're like, I wish I wasn't in this 
schedule mm. or this rat race where mm. I'm never home. I'm traveling. I remember a buddy of mine who was a consultant. He was traveling Monday through Friday every week. No kidding. Which was great in your mid-20s. <laughs> yeah, right. Making a lot of money in this right. net. But then when you have kids, you're Oof. like, well, I don't want to do this. But that's your job now. Like you, it, right. It's really hard to get out of it. Right. Uh, and You've th- built that system. Yeah. And so that's where it becomes really hard. You start to make these things in your 20s. And it also makes me think that this is why we talked a couple weeks ago about retirement. This is why it makes retirement so hard for some people. Mm. They stop having their worth, right, their their yeah. job, and now where's my worth? Where's yeah, my identity? Right. right. They've placed ultimate worth on this thing. Yep. And maybe not even just the thing, but, you know, maybe more significantly their success at this thing, right? I, it's hard for us, I think, to find ultimate worth in this thing that we're really bad at. But yep. if we're good at it, which is why I think, you know, 10, 15, 20 years, these top percentage earners are still working at insane hours. And I think, you know, maybe this is a longer conversation, but it also, I think, has to begin with a healthy theology of work. People, Mm. the goal isn't to not work at all. Like, people assume work came Mm post-fall, and that's just not the case. Like, well before they eat the fruit, well before the serpent, like, like God looks at them, you know, it's called the cultural mandate. He says, look at what I'm giving you. Now build and dream and organize and innovate and cultivate, like, this idea of work in partnership with God and seeing our life as a, a communion with him in whatever we do, that that's in us by design, which is, I think, the definition of idolatry, right? Yes. It's a good thing that becomes an ultimate thing, right? Yeah. Sex is a a good thing, but when it's twisted to become an ultimate thing, mm-hmm. then, it's, then it's problematic. Food, same way. All these things, they're not typically—most of us are not, like, tempted— to like go kill a bunch of people or to do a bunch of illegal drugs. We're tempted most by things that were intended to be great things for us, work included, and then we twist it. And when it takes the number one seat, good. everything else underneath it sort of falls out of order. And it's it's really hard to reorder those things sometimes. I do remember being, when I was younger, the first time I heard a pastor say, oh no, in eternity, right, in heaven, we're going to work. There's mm. going to be work. And I was like, what? I thought we were just sitting on a cloud. <laughs> right, I thought we were just right. you know, playing, playing a harp and a diaper. Yeah. But it... it it's no longer under the curse and no longer under the fall. And I remember being like, oh, okay, so work is God-given and this and that. So you said, you know, we as pastors, in some ways, our, our jobs are very different than businessmen, but in some ways very much the same. Yeah. Uh, how do you guard against workism? Not well. <laughs> not, not, <laughs> Have a baby. Not well. I know, I know, yeah, I know my wife is listening, too, and she, she, like, by the grace of God, like, will gently nudge me, I think, when it, when it starts to get really terribly out of whack. Which, okay. Is part of my answer. It's good accountability. Be- mm. People who will tell you when you have spinach in your teeth, you know, like, yep. hey, I love you. Uh, you're being a real jerk right now. And I think yep. it's because you've overextended yourself or you haven't been able to put your kid to bed three nights in a row. And that's, yep. not, that's not good. Like having that is so helpful, even though in the moment sometimes that can be really um, triggering, right? Like you yep. want, it's, it's anytime I find myself getting really defensive of a behavior, uh, I, know, I know that there's something going on there. Mm. If my response to my wife, who I love more than any person on this planet, is, like anger or defensiveness, yep. she's probably poking on an idol. There's probably something <laughs> that's like, really good. Hey, why are you responding to the woman that you love in this really, really selfish way? Like, okay, pay attention to that. You know, so I think accountability and a lot of it is really small decisions. You know, like yes. I was talking a couple of weeks ago, she, her idea to institute Facebook Free Friday. It's not groundbreaking, but it's like, hey, let's just not be on Facebook on Fridays. Like setting that in place, making that just a rhythm of our home. Yep. Uh, and making decisions. And, you know, we're trying to make good decisions about screen time with our kids and all that stuff, too. So we're sort of all learning it together. Yep. But weekly Sabbaths and being able to, you know, call each other out is, I think, just really important. Yeah. And I think for people out there, if you're trying to be like, well, am I a workaholic? Am I kind of giving into the idol of worship? Uh, I understand there's rhythms in this. I would ask you, 
Oh, when's the last? Uh, do you use your vacation time in a year? Yeah, right, right. <laughs> do you ever use it? Jeez, now I'm convicted again. There Thanks, you go. Ryan. There you go. <laughs> Did I tell you I'm going away in like two weeks? <laughs> oh, no. What's going to happen to the show? Exactly. Well, you'll find out. <laughs> I guess I will. This is a hard one. The idol of work, I think, is one that we probably don't talk a lot about in churches and one that we don't take seriously enough in our culture because it's so just, it's so accepted. Yeah, so no kidding. something we need to really think hard about. Well, coming up next on The Common Good, uh, we're going to have to circle back to Harvest, man. There's some more stuff that came out this week, some more revelations. Ian and I are going to go back and talk about some of the happenings over at Harvest Bible Chapel. That's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Welcome back to The Common Good, everybody. My name is Brian Fromm, joined as always by Ian Simpkins. Uh, You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show there. We like to have conversation and continue talking about uh, the the topics we discuss throughout a show. You could also find uh, our old shows online at 1160hope.com. Well, Ian, every now and then when we are just going through the news, and I feel like as pastors and now as radio hosts, we are like, in the weeds of Christendom, right? Like for, for better or for worse. Well, it's felt dirty lately. <laughs> like we're like in the weeds. So like sometimes I'll ask people, like, do you know these stories? And that you and I are kind of living and breathing. Whether yeah, right. it be uh, Willow back in the summer, uh, you know, Southern Baptist Convention we talked about last week, and all that kind of stuff. I feel like sometimes I get so worked up about these, and I think everybody knows about them. But there's a story that increasingly we're dealing with, and increasingly people in our our area in the Chicagoland area, know, and that's what's been going on at Harvest Bible Chapel. Yeah. Uh, If you've been following the show or been following the news, uh, you know that there has been this steady, uh, I almost said a drip, but now that faucet's turned on completely, a steady onslaught of new allegations, new stories, and it eventually cost James McDonald his job. Uh, It cost most of his upper staff their jobs. And now it's like these things that have been kind of behind the scenes for 20 years or more are now starting to come out. And uh, there was a blog post from our old friend Julie Royce this week that I feel like uh, all the other stuff was bad, like, um, you know, anger issues, some, you know, church polity things like all of it was bad. But this one felt at least as bad because you kind of knew that money was coming, but she laid out the, some of the money stuff, yeah, and it's infuriating. Yeah, tell, tell me if this headline doesn't get your blood pumping. Uh, former Harvest employees say James McDonald lived large on church's dime. Right there. <laughs> right there. I'm already, uh, again, I'm trying to be level-headed and fair, and you were giddy before we went live because, like, I'm already stewing a little yep. bit, and... Uh, Again, you know, it's a it's a former employee. It's an allegation, um, I I think, but there's some pretty 
detailed stuff in here uh, involving tens of thousands of dollars of the church paying for safaris, paying for twenty thousand dollar vacation, yes. like kind of stuff that I I'm re ugh, it it's getting my stomach into a knot in a little bit, um, and uh, it's it's getting harder and harder to to process. Yeah, I would encourage you go to julieroys.com, yeah. com, Julie yeah. Roy's, R-O-Y-S dot com, and you'll find all of her past articles, uh, but also her current articles. And besides you and I just venting about this, which I think is legitimate, uh, there are some points I want to make about the greater church yeah. uh, and the harm that money does to the church, that money and power. I'll link the two, hmm. money and power. But let me give you two things that I found most problematic in a blog post that is full of problematic things. Like you said, from paying exorbitant amounts for a safari to what is best some shady dealings with the IRS to some other stuff. Right. Here's one for you. Two former Harvest executives said the church hid about 20% of its budget That's... from all but top church staffers and the executive committee. That's not okay. Both said this so-called, quote, black budget was controlled by one man, one of the elders or workers there by the name of Fred Adams. It's just not good. I mean, 20% at, yeah. a, at an organization that big is an enormous amount. It gets worse, in my opinion. There was also at Harvest something... Uh, that was called the executive checkbook that James McDonald, as best as this reporting says, more or less had carte blanche to use on mm. personal stuff, on church stuff, his pet projects. He needed signing off on it. But as we've learned about the elders who have now stepped down, they signed off on anything he did. Right. This executive checkbook amounted to 1% of the annual income of the church, otherwise about 250 thousand dollars yikes i don't i don't that uh, really there was no oversight over so man it is just it is just a mess and i want to say to those of you out there who go to harvest and you're sticking it out i hope that a like i pray for you and i don't think that's a bad decision but i would say you need to keep this truth coming out (laughs) like the goal is not for this to all go away the goal is for the organization to become healthy uh, but man, Ian, is there any question as to why Jesus said so much? I think your church is in the middle of talking about it and preaching about it right yeah. now. Is there any reason, is there any surprise that Jesus spent so much time talking about the dangers of money and power? 16 of Jesus's 38 parables talk about money, wealth, and possessions. Like a quarter of his earthly ministry has spent talking about what we do with our stuff. And I think he, I think he sums it all up in Matthew 6, right? Where your treasure is, yes, there your heart is. That's for... Writers, preachers, communicators, businessmen, it's one thing to speak things with your mouth. If you want to know what your heart really values, follow the paper trail. Yes. See where the dollars are going. And you and I have talked about this, too. Like, a big part of that for me is my mortgage, you know, and that's caring for my family. Like, they have a big part of my heart, caring yep. for protecting my family. But but I read things like this and these figures. We're not going to dive into all of it. Mm-hmm. I do highly encourage you to read it for yourself. Um, but, I, I, man, it is so heartbreaking for me. And and you mentioned it. I'm going to re-mention it just because I think it's important. We we need to absolutely be praying for churches, for church leaders, but yes. al- but also um, that we would speak truth to power. Like mm-hmm. I, sometimes people will tune you know tune in half a segment. They'll say you guys really should be calling people to pray for the local church. We absolutely are. Yes. We're praying for James McDonald. I I hope I hope he comes out today and says, man, I really 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 screwed up. Yep. I need to repent. I need help. I need to I need to I need to start giving this these things back. I need to figure out a way. Um, to make things right, I I wholeheartedly pray that. But I also have to admit, I come through this particular story 
uh, and I'm like seeing red. Like yes. it's it's so hard for me to reconcile any universe where tens of thousands of dollars for a safari or a personal vacation. If you're making more than half a million dollars a year just in church salaries, um, pay for your own vacation. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> And maybe, maybe that's I, again. I don't know. I, p- people. Oh, you're right. Again, I'm a tightwad by nature, and I and I grew up in a pretty meager family, so I realize my categories are a little bit wonky, maybe. But holy cow, man! Like that. No wonder people on the outside or people who are interested, maybe in exploring churches, read stuff like this, and they say, "I'm out." That's yes. exactly why I don't want anything to do with this religion. Is because yep. things like this just seem to keep happening. And that's that's where I want to go. There's two things. This is why this story and the continues. Every time I read a new one, I've almost over the weekend was like, I got to stop looking at this. Yeah, right, right. There's two reasons I think it makes my blood boil. And the first one is this, that this is everything wrong with the evangelical machine of mm. celebrity mm. Uh, and and not holding people accountable. Right, right. And this celebrity worship within the Christian world right. and everything wrong. You said it off air. You said I'm where I really think if Jesus came back, yeah, uh, he'd be really angry. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if he came back today and, and read these and saw the way we're doing church and stuff like that's one reason this makes my blood boil, because it's everything wrong. Us, by the way, meaning in the West, I, I think 100%. so much of the global church in the East and the South is killing it. Yeah. <laughs> like, so, so I do want to make sure that it, there is some distinction there, too, that. But, you know, part of what I yeah. said before we went live was Jesus is weeping, I think, has to do a lot with, with how we're handling that here. Unfortunately, the Chicago land as of late. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. Unfortunately, and the second reason that this makes my blood boil is you already touched on it, is this is such a huge open door for people to go, well, that's why I don't want to be a part of this. No kidding. Like, it is so defaming to the name of Jesus, uh, not rightfully so, but when you've got this flagship church hmm. uh that has been proclaiming Jesus and is like one that people hold up there. People see them all in different towns. There's all these campuses and all this stuff. And it's so financially and power rotten at the core. Yeah, right. It, it can't do anything but uh, cripple hmm. the 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 example of all the other churches in the area. Yeah, when right. the Daily Herald's running front page stuff about Harvest, I know. it leaks down to all the other churches, and in the end, the name of Jesus is what's defamed. And I, and I think if you're in any of those churches in the surrounding Chicagoland area, let let this be for us warning, not something to to cause just fear and warning, but also let's be better. Yes, let let's be transparent. Let's yeah. seek accountability. If you're someone in power, in authority, don't wait until accountability is enforced upon you. Seek it out. Yes. Build systems and structures where there's accountability through and through um, that actually honors, I think, what we're called to do when it, when we lead and shepherd people. Okay. feel like we just both needed to vent a little yeah, bit. Yeah. No, geez, geez, Louise. <laughs> I got to calm, it's I gotta the last calm down. I got to calm down. I'm hoping it's the last time we have to do that, but sadly, I don't think it will be. Yeah. Well, coming up next, thankfully, we get the shift gears. We're going to have a great interview with a pastor by the name of Kevin Harney, who just wrote a book called No is a Beautiful Word. Mm. That's what's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, alongside Ian Simpkins. Uh, we are excited. A lot of times, Ian, we get we get the uh, the privilege of talking to authors yeah. and pastors, and we have one of those opportunities right now. We're joined by Kevin Harney. Kevin is a local church pastor, an author, an author, and an international speaker. And Kevin has just written a book called "No Is a Beautiful Word," which goal is to discover how to say no to things that don't matter to make room for things that will give your life joy. And meaning, Kevin, thank you so much for joining us on The Common Good today. 
It's an absolute honor to be with you guys. So just really uh, on a base level, what inspired you to write this book? Why this book about the beautiful word of no? Well, I think mostly just interacting with real life people who are Mm. overextended, sometimes exhausted. They feel kind of trapped in all their yeses because they haven't thought through it. Many Mm. Christians, as a pastor, I know Christians who are like, I want to be loving. I want to be caring. And so they say yes to everything. And then and then eventually their plate is so full, they can't. They really they, they they can't get out of things. They're feeling discouraged, sometimes bitter or frustrated, and they're not finding the joy and meaning that I believe God wants for their life because they said yes, yes, yes. And sometimes to to get to a healthier place in life, we have to say no to certain things right. so we can say yes to what matters most. That's good. That's really good. Okay, so I I read your subtitle and I about cheered. It says hope and help for the overcommitted and occasionally exhausted, which I will, I'll put myself in that category a lot, but I'll, I'll ask on behalf of my people-pleasing co-host, uh, <laughs> why do you think people struggle so much to actually say no? Like, they want hope, they want help, they feel exhausted. Why, why do we struggle so much to simply say no? Well, I think particularly for you know for your audience, a lot of folks that are Christians are people trying to understand the Christian faith, and and I think we have the sense that well, Jesus was so loving and kind, and Jesus mm. healed people and helped people, and 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 was was about giving, which is absolutely true. But what people don't recognize uh, when you read the Bible closely, and you read you know Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels, is that Jesus actually said no yeah. often. Yes, right. And and if he could say no, we can say no. And so sometimes we have a misunderstanding of what kindness really is, mm. and then also what we don't realize is that once our plate is full, once our, once our life is full of lots of things, whenever we do say yes to something new, we're actually saying no to something else because mm. when the plate's full, you slide, slide something new on, something falls off the other side, and oftentimes it's our, it's our health, it's our family, it's our faith, it's our time with Jesus. Mm. And so actually everybody's good at saying no. It's just sometimes we, don't, we do it accidentally. Oh, and we wow. need to learn to say, say no intentionally. That's yeah. good. As Ian said, I do have a bit of a people-pleasing uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. a strain in me. So with that in mind, just what, what's some practical advice you have for someone like me uh, who has a hard time saying no? I think just to recognize that, that you, when you say, I have a hard time saying no, mm-hmm. if your life is full, and, and for most people that are people-pleasers, I, I'm going to say this for anyone who's a people-pleaser, their life is full mm-hmm. because there's so many people around them with needs and people they care about. And so they say so many yeses, overt or subtle, kind of just personal yeses by helping, stepping in, doing things. And, and I think to have a clearer vision of saying, boy, I, I want the best life that God has intended for me. And I want to understand how God wants to lead and guide me. And to get where he wants me to go, sometimes I'm going to have to say no to things that are no good and bad and negative. But sometimes I have to say no to things that are that are good and yeah. even things that are wonderful opportunities. Right. But I simply don't have the room to do more. And so to understand that I'm going to say no, uh, it's just a matter of whether I'm going to do it with a very thoughtful, prayerful uh, attitude or whether I'm going to do it accidentally. And when I do it accidentally – the, the most critical things in life tend to be the things that suffer the most. Oh, wow. And we don't mm. sometimes recognize it for weeks or months or even, sadly, years. Wow. I think that's a really important realization, though. Like at our church, one of the things that we'll often say is, what do you need to say no to in order to say yes to God in this moment? We don't usually think that, oh, I, maybe I need to stop doing something. You know, in a, in a world of to-do lists, we very rarely make stop doing lists, right? We just kind of keep saying yes. And one of the things that I found so fascinating about your book. It's it's maybe the most like detailed, practical book on saying no that I've ever seen. And part two, this won't translate auditorily very well, know your no's, right? Like know which no's you're giving. And then you you give an example of like 
two dozen different types of nose that I've I've never even considered. Can can you talk a little bit about why it's important to have different kinds of nose, like to to know the full menu of nose at your disposal? Yeah, absolutely, because every situation, every person you interact with is dramatically different. Right. And you can interact with the same person at another time, and where they are emotionally demands a different way of saying no. We, we want to still be kind. We want to still be loving. We want to still be gracious when we say no. Mm. And so there's very strong no's when somebody's asking you to do something that's illegal or immoral mm. Mm. or against your character. Well, you have to be you, – you don't just say, hey, no thanks. You yeah. say, no, no <laughs> right. That, right. That's, you know, that's not who I am, yes. and you don't need to ever ask me that again. Right. And you need to close the door for it. And, and then you know, a, little, a little girl is knocking at your door. She's selling Girl Scout cookies. And, uh, and, you know, you've already bought from the last two Girl Scouts who came by. You don't need to say, no, never, don't ever ask me again. I would terrify the little girl, you know. In, in, in those moments, you say, hey, hey, no, no, I really can't because, because I've already bought from the last two Girl Scouts who came. But if you come quicker next year, I'd right. love to buy some Thin Mints and put them in the fridge, chill them, and enjoy those. Deep, you know? <laughs> so good. But, uh, but, but it's, a, it's a different kind of no because it's a different person. I, I, I travel a lot. When I land sometimes in different countries where a taxi cab driver will begin to grab my bags and say, I'm driving you. And I'll say, wait a minute, I don't know you. I have a rental car. Um, I can <laughs> right. give a pretty quick, strong no because yeah, they're right. overhelping. So every situation demands a different no. And so I go through, like you said, a couple dozen ways to say no. And what's so much fun is that when people walk through those, here's what they begin to say. I can do that. Yeah, right. I can say no. When they say they can't, they just haven't thought through mm. the right way to do it. And once they have a beautiful menu of no's, they can do it and have minimum effect on discouraging and, and, and disheartening people and a maximum effect on freeing themselves to live the life God intends. That's, that's, that's really, really good. good. That's really good. Uh, so oftentimes we think of no, and the reason a lot of us probably tend away from it is because it's such a negative word, right? No is negative. Yes is yeah. positive. But in your book, you you say that no is actually a positive word. Could you talk about that for a little bit? Yeah, it, it, it's the most positive word you might ever speak hmm. because when your life is full, and I, and I watch you know, homeschool parents whose lives are full and overextended. I watch retired people who are supposed to have freedom and everyone has a great plan for their retirement and, uh, and everybody tells them what they want to do. And their, their, their lives are so full, they're beginning to feel overwhelmed and weighted down. And, and when you begin to say no, even to good things, you breathe deeply and you say, okay, I have room to, to sit quietly with Jesus. Mm. I have room to hang out with my children or my spouse. I have room just to be quiet. Right. And, right. And, our life, and our lives can open up in this beautiful way. And so without learning to say no, I think virtually every one of us is going to become overextended. And then we feel weighted down. We feel burdened. Right. I, think, I think it's something that leads to, to depression and discouragement because we say, I have no room to breathe or live. And so I think saying no, as tough as it is, is one of the most beautiful things we can do, and it releases us to, to really embrace the yeses that God is ready to offer us, mm. but we have no room on our plate to put them. That's really good. Okay, so just, just you know, Brian and I are both pastors, so a lot, of the thing, a lot of the things we like to ask people to do is just cast some vision then for the person who's listening, either they're really good at saying no, but maybe, maybe they need to learn some new tactics, or the person that's like... Mm. They're scared to death to say no. What What are some of the good results? Just cast some vision. Clear the the fog from the mountaintop for us. What are some good results of learning to say no in a way that is actually like helpful and honoring both to God and to us and our families? Can you just paint that picture a little bit? What What are the, What are some of the things that we can look forward to by learning to say no better? That's a fantastic question, and really, you're asking for two kinds of people. So let me speak to both those kind of people. First is the person who says, "I'm pretty good at saying no, and I'm pretty good at having you know boundaries." And actually, you know, I'm I'm really when somebody asks me, I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to say nope, and I'm pretty bold and firm. <laughs> right, right. I would say to that, I would say to that person, 
walking through the, the you know a couple dozen ways to say no, you can craft and shape and form the way you say no with a with the greatest level of grace, mm. the greatest le- level of clarity and kindness. I think we we can become better at saying no. I've worked I've been working at this for over 20 years as a pastor. I love people. I don't like saying no. Yeah. But as I've learned a great menu of no's, it's amazing how quickly I can sort of identify boy in this situation with this person I need to say, no, but let me explain why. And with a simple explanation, they kind of go, oh, it's not that you don't like me. It's not that you don't love me. It's that you have this other thing you've committed to. So so for those people that are pretty firm in their no's, just expand the way you say no and become more effective. Extend greater grace and kindness as you say no. And, and that'll really, I think, honor Jesus and make your life a better life and strengthen your relationships. Right. But then at the other end of the continuum are those people who say, I, I hate saying no. I don't like saying no. I'm no good at saying no. And I would say for those people, the reason you need to learn to say no with a you know, thoughtful, prayerful intentionality in your life is because I, I'm going to not prophesying, but I'm predicting you are busy, you mm. are overextended, you have no margin. Why? Because mm. you can't say no. Mm. And, and I just I want to encourage you to envision a life where you wake up in the morning and you look at your day and you say, I actually have space. Mm. I have space to, to, to be creative. I have space to laugh. I have space to relax. Yeah, I'm going to work hard, and I'm going to serve people well, and I'm going to be passionately committed to Jesus, no question. But my life is not so overextended that I feel worn out before I start my day. Yeah. I, I want to cast a vision of a life where there's space for Jesus, for people, for your own growth and maturing that oftentimes we miss over weeks and months and years because we're so busy checking off everything on our checklist. And then we go to bed at night and we have 27 things we haven't checked off yet. So we wake up exhausted in the morning. Right. I want to cast a vision for a life that has room and margin to live the way God's called us to live. That's great. Fantastic. Well, now I'm excited to, to re, uh, keep reading your book. So Kevin, thank you so much for joining us. Kevin Harney is the author of no is a beautiful word. Uh, you can follow Kevin on Twitter at Kevin G. Harney. And also he has a website, KevinGHarney.com. And before we let you go, I did just want to let you know, I wanted to thank you also for your book, Organic Outreach. Very important book for me as a pastor and our church. So I wanted to thank you for that book while I had you on the phone as well. Uh, I'd encourage people to pick that one up. You're, you're welcome, and thank you both for your ministry, both in the local church and speaking to people uh, this way. And uh, may God bless you guys as you keep doing what he's called you to do. Thank you so much. Thanks Have so a great much. day, Kevin. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Well, you're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You can follow us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Also online at 1160hope.com. I think tomorrow or the next day, man, you know what we're going to introduce? We're like moving into the 1990s, maybe the 2000s. (laughs) A text line. That's right. We're going text line. I don't think it's called a text line, though. Is it really a line? What what, what do you you want to go with? (laughs) A text option. A text option. A text so platform. We're going to give you more ways to interact with Ian and I. In today, <laughs> like we love the many different ways. Today, we got a letter from somebody, a handwritten Our letter. Our first written, handwritten a letter. A handwritten letter, and we are very excited about that. It's so very, very sweet. We were worried about it. We <laughs> thought it well, might be as bad. As well we should be. <laughs> we thought that it might be bad, but it was very nice. And so 
We take we take handwritten letters. To, oh, I'm, I'm searching again, aren't I? <laughs> you kind of are. I'm searching I didn't again. want to say it, but <laughs> all right. We all know what we call segue. Speaking of gratitude, oh wow! Speaking of gratitude, there was a you came up. You found a great study that was uh, in this article here, and I'll read the title. Okay, called this neuroscience reveals how gratitude literally rewires your brain to be happier. Yeah, I I love this kind of stuff first and foremost and for a couple of reasons. One because I just I just find our brains and our bodies really fascinating. Yeah. Two though to get really nerdy is that the more that I find in scripture that aligns with what we're finding in modern science, like I just find that so I that's so endlessly interesting to me. Mm. And they're like, "Oh, gratitude isn't just this like spiritual discipline we're supposed to model." But our bodies are actually reacting in ways that are like super, super helpful. So let me let me just read a little bit, and uh, and then I'll let you react. Absolutely. Um, according to UCLA's Mindfulness Awareness Research Center, regularly expressing gratitude literally changes the molecular structure of the brain, hmm. keeps the gray matter functioning, and makes us healthier and happier. In fact, uh, in one study of gratitude conducted by Robert A. Emmons at the University of California at Davis and his colleague, uh, his colleague Mike McCullough, uh, McCullough, McCullough. 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 We'll go with McCullough. that. At the University of Miami, randomly assigned participants, uh, randomly assigned participants were given one of three tasks. The participants kept a journal each week uh, with one group describing things they were grateful for, another describing what's hassling them, and the other keeping track of neutral events. After 10 weeks, the participants in the gratitude group felt 25% better That's a lot. than the other groups and exercised an average of 1.5 hours more. Mm. Isn't that by, simply by the, the practice, the discipline of keeping a gratitude journal had those types of effects on how they felt and how they functioned? I find that absolutely fascinating. It really is because, unfortunately, as a culture, we're getting more uh, grumpy. Yeah, no, yeah, and no we're kidding. Probably getting less thankful and showing less gratitude. You know, it says something for all our moms out there who used to always tell us, "Say thank you." <laughs> Say yeah, thank you. right, right. Because I do. I think with the onset of Twitter and social media and just kind of who we are as a culture, I think that we're we're more edgy, we're more contrarian, we're more we're, we're less likely to be people of gratitude. Yep. And so it's saying here that is going to physically affect you. And physiologically affect you if you, in fact, are a person who does who does not tend towards gratitude. Well, and there's an, another Chinese researcher, a group of Chinese researchers found that higher levels of gratitude were associated with better sleep and with lower levels of anxiety and depression. So it's not just this, oh, I feel happier yes. or I exercise a little bit more. Like the, the entire infrastructure of your life is affected uh, by simply being more grateful, which is yeah. something that, you know, the Apostle Paul uses words like like meditate on things above, and there's all sorts of things throughout the Christian tradition that have elevated the importance of gratitude. And yet so often, I think like things like keeping a gratitude journal yeah. feels so fringe, like, oh, that's just what the hippies do, <laughs> right? And we're finding more and more like there's like real-life yeah. benefits to just making the intentional steps to to be more grateful, which I think is fascinating. Yeah, and, and I, let's turn it to that. What are— because we've got, you know, Thanksgiving comes around every November and we all sit around and we say, oh, this is what I'm thankful for. We realize, oh, I actually have things to be thankful for. Yeah. But this is more talking about a daily rec- recognition of what I have to be gr- uh, thankful for and why uh, gratitude, what I uh, can have gratitude towards. And so let's give some people uh, some practical ways to grow a spirit of gratitude. What are some thoughts on that? Yeah, so this one article I was reading about this idea, because I'm endlessly interested in this stuff. Yes, you are. Uh, gives three really practical ideas. Um, and it's, again, not a, it's not a Christian article, so you'll, you'll maybe, you know, 
notice like a decided lack of like Jesus or God language. Yep. But uh, if you're listening and you're not team Jesus or team God, you can use these too. There's there's literally like neurological, physiological benefits. Number one, uh, keep a daily journal of three things you're thankful for. This works well either first thing in the morning or just before you go to bed. Mm. A daily journal each day. Just three things you're grateful for. Those could be big things, small things, things that happened that day, things that you're recalling in the moment. Make it three, though. Every day, three things you're grateful for. Number Mm. two, uh, make it a practice to tell a spouse, partner, or friend something you appreciate about them every day. I need to be way better at this one. It's so easy, (laughs) right, to gripe about the things that aren't getting done or aren't happening or the, you know, you didn't get your way. Like, make it a practice uh, to verbally communicate to someone close to you what you appreciate, appreciate about them. And then number three, uh, look in the mirror when you're brushing your teeth and think about something you've done well recently or something you like about yourself. I'm really bad at that one. I tend to be really hard on myself. And I think, I don't know if you're this way, but like when I lay in my bed at night, typically when I'm playing back the tape, it's like, oh man, I shouldn't have said that. Oh, I should have been better there. Like I kind of run the tape of the the screw ups of my day. Gotcha. um, Which sometimes can be helpful, but other times can be a real, (laughs) can be a real spiral. The, The idea of just like, nope. You did pretty good here, or I, I like that we're going in this direction, that I'm not really good at um, gratitude toward myself, I guess. That's good. And and I think that something I'm hearing here, too, the one that challenged me in that was taking time to kind of look back and reflect upon what you have. Sometimes my issue is just moving to what's next. Oh, totally. It's always going forward and, totally. and not taking the moments to go, you know what, I can be really thankful for church yesterday. Yeah. It was really good to be part of the family right. of God, and it was really good to be with my church community. Hey, we played game with my kids last night. Man, my kids are healthy. Uh, we had we had that space in our life for my three kids and my wife and I to sit around and laugh mm. and eat ice cream mm. and play a game. Like, wow, I'm really thankful for that. But no, we finished that game. We moved on the bed. You know, in a way you go. Right, right. Uh, and that's where the journaling is helpful or taking time to tell your spouse, hey, I'm thankful for you. Totally. Like, I, I think, too, it's, it's a way... Like, this kind of thinking needs to work its way into our prayer life, too. Because how often do we begin every prayer yes. with, God, I need something from you. Please do this. Make this happen. And and I don't think God's annoyed by that, but it seems like, man, what would change mm. if we began our prayers by simply saying, God, thank you. Thank mm. you that I have one more breath in my lungs, that I have one more, even though the furnace broke and my dishwasher's not working, like I have a house to live in. I have a yeah. car, even though it doesn't start every fourth try. <laughs> I ha- you know what I mean? Like, like what, would, yes. what would even in our prayer life, beginning with a posture of gratitude that says, God, I, I know that none of this is owed to me, that all of this is a gift, even the frustrating parts. Yeah. So thank you. I'm just grateful. Maybe even not just the stuff that we have, but just for who God is, just a posture of God, that you would know me and know mm. me by name and care about my life. Thank you. Like, I, I have to admit, even That's great. I'm feeling convicted even in this moment, how often in my prayer life, and I'm, and you know, I'm a pastor. Yes. We, we jump right to you, God, would you do this thing? And often those things that we ask him to do are good things. Yes. But, but man, I, I need to learn from starting with God. I, I'm just, I'm grateful that uh, I in any way get to participate in the work that you're doing in the world. And that's a gift. Yeah, if we can't have gratitude towards towards what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, then I'm guessing we won't have gratitude for yeah, right. the other things. And speaking of gratitude, uh, I do want to highlight something. Last week, Ian and I had the pleasure of being able to have, uh, we did two days with Cross International. Yeah, right. And I think I left there really feeling a lot of gratitude and thankfulness for what I have in my life compared to these starving children in dumps. And I, you and I both left there feeling really passionately compelled to see uh, people supporting them. 
Uh, and we set a goal with them. And, man, we we are really close. We got really close. And I felt good about it. It's our first time doing this. And we got really close to our goal. I think we're within under $1,000 of the ultimate goal. Yep. And so we still want to cross that finish line. That's right. Uh, and so if you want to support Cross International, $39 for an entire year will feed a child uh, for that whole year. Yeah. Not $39 a month, $39 right. for a whole year. It's crazy. So if you go to 1160hope.com, you'll still see there the Cross International on the banner. Just click on it and you'll be able, you can you can do $39 or maybe you'd want to do a couple kids you want to do. Uh, you can do as many kids as you want and help us get across that finish line. Not so Ian and I feel good, but <laughs> yeah. so that more kids get fed. Totally. And, and, and just to clarify, it's it's not on the banner. you got to scroll down a little bit and uh, click the uh, Cross International uh, photo there. But, yeah, $39, one-time gift. We'll feed a kid for a whole year. You and I both felt kind of inspired to do, you know, maybe in honor yes. of our kids, maybe think about that. Uh, that It is one great way to show gratitude is to help somebody else survive. It's awesome. So you can find that there. I also just proved I don't really know what a banner is, so... <laughs> <laughs> well, coming up next, it's the end of the show. We like to do funny things, funny things we found from the internet. I told you, Ian, before, my mom told me over the weekend she really likes this part of our show. Your mom does? My mom does. She <laughs> really likes this part of the I show. Love that. So that's what's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. <clears throat> Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. You can follow us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, also online at 1160hope.com. Ian, one of our favorite times is at the end of the show when we just do crazy stuff from the internet. <laughs> I got to say it like that, right? Crazy stuff from the internet. It also makes it sound like our favorite part is when it's over. No, no, no. Just, you know, just the end. Just the funny parts. Just the funny parts. So just fun stories we or our producers have found on the internet. So why don't you start for us? Okay, the first one's out of California, and I got to say, it's funny... It's also like a little bit sad. It says uh, musician wrecks grand piano while towing it on a bike through San Francisco. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> That's actual audio from the scene. Uh, a world famous piano player who tows his baby grand piano around on his bicycle crashed while Not biking. Mister Connors, you say this is your first lesson? Oh gosh. Yes, but my father was a piano mover. So. <laughs> the great Bill Murray. I love it. So good. Uh, crashed while biking down the hilly streets of San Francisco. Uh, he was looking for a place to park his bike and piano when he picked up too much <laughs> speed and was forced to bail. And the photo is so heartbreaking because it's this baby grand like on its side yeah. and the bike's tip. Like, it's just a tragic, awful, slightly humorous situation. It's good. It's good. <laughs> All right. My next one's out of Nebraska. Ready? Intoxicated man arrested for lighting bottle rockets off in his home. Lincoln police said an intoxicated man was arrested Wednesday for lighting bottle rockets and being uncooperative with officers. You think? Witnesses told Van- told police that Vance was intoxicated and breaking bottles in front of his home and lighting off bottle rockets. They arrived and observed that he was still lighting off the bottle rockets. <laughs> when he asked, when they asked him to stop, he refused. He then co- continued being uncooperative, and he was arrested for disturbing the peace and using bottle rockets in the city. All right, move on. Okay, New York. I don't want my lotto-winning ex-husband back, even for $273 million. (laughs) Even a $273 million jackpot isn't enough for this lottery winner's ex-wife to want him back. And here's her quote. (laughs) 
She says he's not appealing to me all of a sudden <laughs> because he has this money. That's that that'll sting, right? <laughs> you can't help but feel a little rejected. <laughs> That's good. And a little unfortunate. Oh, South Carolina. South Carolina. Man storms Taco Bell makes own Mexican pizza. Sure, why not? A drive-thru customer enraged by the paucity of meat. I love, if I had a band, I'd call it paucity of meat. As raged by the, uh, enraged by the paucity of meat on his Mexican pizza, stormed a Taco Bell in South Carolina and walked into the kitchen area and began making his own food. Wow. According to cops, the suspect uh, was complaining that there was not enough meat on his Mexican pizza. pizza. A store employee told the cops that she said, she then remade the suspect's food. He was still equally displeased with the second pizza and demanded a refund. When told that it was not possible since the manager was not on the premises, the suspect became enraged, uh, enraged, declaring that he would show the employees how to make his food his appropriate the appropriate way. He walked behind the counter into the kitchen area, not wearing protective gloves oh, or the proper dear. healthy uh, oh, guidelines. And made himself another Mexican pizza and subsequently left the store and the premises. Investigators described the Mexican pizza enthusiast uh, in his late 20s and early 30s. And they gave out a whole thing. Police expect to retrieve video surveillance footage recorded by the Taco Bell. If apprehended, the suspect faces possible misdemeanor larceny. And trespass charges. Yo quiero Taco Bell. Yep, that's it. I was gonna make. I was gonna make a prediction. I knew that's what it was you gonna knew be. It was coming. Okay, so two quick notes. One, can you define the word paucity? Scarcity. Oh, way to go, yes. Brian Fromm. Yeah. I'm impressed. What, uh, what is scarcity? Yeah, well, well, well done. To throw back to Alex Trebek. <laughs> Number two, I actually just saw that for a limited time through Grubhub. Uh, all Taco Bell orders are now free delivery. Awesome. So, and I think it'll be $12 or more, so you have to get roughly 6,000 tacos. <laughs> all right, here we go. Uh, articles out of Washington, D.C., but it says... Oh, no. Oh, dear, dear goodness. Illinois, Wisconsin congressman debate Nickelback on the House floor. <laughs> I got sent this video clip about 17,000 times. And even just having to listen to this song right now, I'm going to double down on my position. This is not a good song. I like this song. You do like this song? I do. What? Please, what about this song? It's a just catchy straight. tune. <laughs> so is Happy Birthday, but I'm not I'm not putting it in regular yeah. rotation. Yeah, Keith, are, are we pro Nickelback over there? Oh, boy. Oh, Keith gave a no. I knew I liked Keith. Keith gave a no. That's, okay. that's my boy. You, you need to go find this debate, though. It was like a really humorous little exchange. About uh, someone's disdain for Nickelback and someone else's love for Nickelback. I think calling them one of the greatest bands of the 90s. I, I mean, I wouldn't go that far. But okay. Well, that yeah. we can agree on. I appreciate that very much. Turned into a good I debate. I want the people to know that they still have two out of three branches of the government working for them. <laughs> and that ain't bad. <laughs> oh, that's gold. That's, that's really gold. funny. <laughs> oh, well, craziness on the internet, man. It's always a fun way to end it. Well, for Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Have a great night.
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.